0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well,
0: Margaret, here we are again wondering what will become of the Affordable Care Act based on another pending Supreme Court decision. June 16th is the expected decision date for King versus Burwell a case that could have far-reaching implications on the fundamental foundation of the health law and its financing.
1: And the case is challenging one of the economic foundations of the health care law.
0: So here's what's at stake. The plaintiff argues that the law prohibits residents of states without state-run health insurance marketplaces, also called exchanges from receiving federal tax credits and cost-sharing reductions. The government argues that this is a misreading of the statute. If the high court decides in favor of the plaintiffs, millions of Americans will lose these vital tax subsidies that help fund their health insurance and will no longer be able to afford to purchase insurance.
1: Well, it goes straight to the affordable aspect of the Affordable Care Act. If the high court rules against this provision, it will have very far-reaching implications. And as you say, Mark, millions of Newly insured Americans who rely heavily on the ACA's tax subsidy provision could lose their benefit.
0: Most of these families are low and in middle income. and would likely forego paying for health insurance as the premiums would be cost
2: prohibitive.
1: And then the medical industry would feel the brunt of it as well. As we learned during the Great Recession and before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, millions of uninsured Americans simply went without treatment. It's estimated that physician practices, hospitals, prescription drug, other medical spending could see up to a 35% drop in business if these millions of Americans lose coverage. And of course, that's without quantifying the price tag for what happens in the absence of prevention and effective treatment.
0: Really, as we've said all along, the health care law will continue to run the gauntlet of challenges and aspects of it may change over time. But as providers, we've seen the ACA Having benefited so many previously uninsured Americans who now have affordable access to prevention and good chronic disease management.
1: Well, insured or not, America has another problem, Mark, and that's obesity. An estimated one in three Americans is obese or overweight and at significant cost to the population's health. And our guest today is a world renowned expert on the topic.
0: Dr. William Dietz is director of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at George Washington University. He'll talk about new prevention initiatives to bring this weighty health crisis under control.
1: And Lori Robertson will be checking in. Our managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health and health policy in the public domain.
0: But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradiochc at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: And we'll get to our interview with Dr. William Dietz in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare with this week's Headline
3: News. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. The number of uninsured Americans is at its lowest level in decades, according to a recent analysis done by the Centers for Disease Control. CDC surveyed the insurance landscape and found that only 11.9 percent of respondents reported being uninsured for some or all of last year. That number had been far higher since at least the mid-1990s anywhere from 18 to 22%. The National Health Institute survey report comes as the Supreme Court weighs another decision on a fundamental aspect of the health care law, whether the subsidies received by some 13.4 million Americans purchasing health insurance are actually legal in the 37 states that didn't set up their own exchanges. That decision could lead to more than 8 million Americans no longer being able to afford the cost of insurance. The study also showed a drop in uninsured children down to 6.1 percent and also a sharp increase in the number of Americans purchasing high-deductible health plans, which means they have the coverage but will pay more out of pocket for those costs. And Medicaid expansion has only happened in about half of the states, though the number is growing. Widening the eligibility for those living closer to the poverty line to qualify for Medicaid coverage. The health law's expansion of Medicaid coverage to adults with incomes over the poverty line was key to reducing the uninsured rate among 50 to 64-year-olds from 12 percent to 8 percent in 2014 alone. States like Texas and Florida, who have vociferously fought the Medicaid expansion, have much higher rates of uninsured adults. The Bipartisan Policy Center has released a white paper on recommendations for incentivizing prevention in the healthcare setting, highlighting a new initiative from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid's Innovation Program. They've launched the Million Hearts Cardiovascular Disease Risk Reduction Model, which rewards physicians who significantly reduce the risk for stroke or heart attack in patient panels. The plan's author, Dr. Darshak Sanghavi, says the program will marry financial incentives to improved outcomes. Sanghavi says providers and patients will work to determine potential cardiovascular risks, devise a preventive treatment plan, and pay for positive outcomes through Medicare. And take two Shakespeare's and call me in the morning. Mount Sinai Medical School in New York is lauding its efforts to diversify its pool of medical students by plucking students who didn't go the traditional pre-med track of math and science, but art and humanities. Mount Sinai and a growing number of institutions around the country are expanding their admissions process to include more so-called humeds, humanities majors seeking medical degrees. The dean of the program is saying it's bringing in diverse thinking approaches to the interchange among medical students Students and a creative thought process as well, which can often translate, he says, into making better doctors and clinicians. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. William Dietz, director of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University, which is seeking solutions to the obesity epidemic and the growing public health problems. Dr. Dietz is internationally recognized expert on prevention, obesity, and nutrition having served for 15 years as the director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Dietz served as a professor of pediatrics at Tufts University School of Medicine. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine and is a prolific author with over 200 peer-reviewed articles and five books, including the Clinical Obesity in Adults and Children and Nutrition Dr. Dietz earned his B.A. at Wesleyan, his M.D. at UPenn, and his Ph.D. in nutritional biochemistry from MIT. Bill, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Um, Thank you. You've been uh, long studying the links between nutrition, uh, physical exercise, and obesity. You know, it's a it's a topic that we've had a number of people on our show talking about. Its impact is uh, uh, is well known now. I think in the public's mind, an estimated one in three people in the country, and 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 certainly a Uh, problem around the globe. And a recent estimate by the Brookings Institute put the projected obesity-related medical cost a little over a trillion dollars. And we have a pretty good idea of the cause of obesity, uh, but we're still getting a handle on the science of weight loss and prevention. In the work that you've been doing, what's the most alarming to you in terms of the pervasiveness of the obesity problem?
2: Well, obesity is, as you point out, is a pervasive problem. About one in three adults has obesity. And and by the way, I'm going to use people first language. That is, instead of talking about obese people, which is an identity, we should be talking about people with obesity, Mm -hmm. which indicates that the person is independent from their disease. But about one in three adults uh, have obesity, and about 17% of children and adolescents have obesity. And the consequences of this over time are substantial. Not only is it very expensive, as you pointed out with the recent Brookings study, but it also is associated with very significant diseases. It's an important cause of several different cancers. About 20% of cancers arise from obesity. It's a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and its strongest association is with type 2 diabetes. What's encouraging about obesity is That the prevalence is now pretty flat in adults and and adolescents. What's even more encouraging is that among two to five year old children, there are decreases in the prevalence of childhood obesity, which suggests that we're at the corner um, and may be slowly turning the corner on this epidemic. And what's encouraging to me is that there is a widespread awareness now of this epidemic. Um, We've been focused at, at CDC and now here at GW focused on policy and environmental solutions to to change the environments in which people uh, live, work, play, and pray.
1: Well, Dr. Dietz, you recently participated in a panel discussion at the Bipartisan Policy Center on this topic of chronic disease, obesity, but also the need for new comprehensive prevention strategies. And we sort of sit here in 2015, Affordable Care Act fully implemented, fewer people uninsured, healthcare transforming, but still transitioning from a healthcare system that pays for sick care versus a system that pays for uh, better outcomes and better health. And what are your thoughts on incentivizing the healthcare system to advocate for prevention? What are those strategies and policies that are needed to ensure that this happens?
2: The providers aren't rewarded when something doesn't happen. And and if prevention works, nothing happens. Um, there's a very important role that the healthcare system, can play in the treatment of severe obesity. What we've seen and what I think helps account for the plateaus that we've seen, I think those are a consequence of of increased awareness and modest changes in practices. So we know that fast food consumption, soda consumption, and pizza consumption have all decreased recently. Um, There's also been a lot of interest and change in things like the school lunch, Mm -hmm. thanks to Mm -hmm. uh, Michelle Obama and, and the White House. But those environmental changes are, I, I think, very effective for prevention, but they're not going to help people who have significant obesity to begin with. The medical system plays a key role in uh, in helping people with significant obesity lose weight. This is not a problem that's going to be exclusively solved through medical interventions. And one of the developments that we've talked about at Bipartisan Policy Center is the need for integrating clinical and community services so that what's going on in the community reinforces the kinds of changes that medical providers are trying to achieve with their patients. So you can't very well consume a better diet if you don't have access to healthful food. And one of the key elements there is how does one uh, compensate either providers or invest in community systems in, in a way that saves money. And how do we avoid the double pocket problem, which is savings in, on one side are not realized by the groups that are achieving those savings?
0: Hmm. You know, uh, we have patients in front of us a uh, 100 minutes out of their 526,000-minute-a-year uh, life. And uh, so the work that we need to do, particularly on chronic uh, conditions, really requires us to be engaged in the community and, and uh, to be thoughtful about it. And it is exciting. You mentioned uh, the First Lady, certainly her Let's Move campaign. So we're starting to see those types of programs take root. And wondering if you could talk about programs that you're seeing that have meaningful impact and how we might change the behaviors of families. I know one of the things that we're doing now around rewards to quit for smoking cessation, really paying people not to uh, smoke. And uh, I mean, I'm wondering what you're seeing out there sort of on the system side, but also right down to the level of parents, uh, what might be some uh, encouraging behavioral changes within families or communities that we might be making.
2: Well, one of the things that we know about obesity is that it spreads along social networks. Um, there, in huh. The Framingham study, there was yeah. a, a very nice study showing that both obesity and, and tobacco use spread along social networks. And there's some recent, very interesting work that um, is beginning to suggest that weight change, weight decreases, uh, can occur along those same networks. And in the case of, of children and adolescents, it's quite clear that family engagement is a, is a crucial element, mm-hmm. that uh, you can't expect um, children and adolescents in a family to make changes that are healthful without the kinds of uh, reinforcements, because parents are responsible for what comes into the house. But parenting is also the toughest nut to crack. Although we have access to parents in in our pediatric practices, engaging parents in change, um, making it a meaningful um, issue is is often difficult for pediatricians. And when we talk about obesity, parents, I I think, are turned off because obesity is a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. And uh, work by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has shown that talking about a healthy weight is more likely to engage um, parents. What we're seeing, though, ar- around the country is a, a very intense interest in changing the environments for children. The, the work in schools, the, the mm-hmm. uh, Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, mm-hmm. and we're about to see some guidelines for the child and adult care food programs, which uh, provide food to mm-hmm. early care and education centers. Um, those are all, uh, both the schools and the early care and education centers, are environmental changes, Um, and those are likely to be significant because that's where children spend a Mm -hmm. lot of time. The question is, are the changes in early care and education and in schools uh, enough so that they're not counterbalanced by what occurs outside early care and education and schools?
1: Well, you know, Dr. D, so much of this is uh, reminiscent of some of the great public health social campaigns of uh, Recent decades, certainly, I think about the use of seatbelts um, and how successful that has been. But earlier, you you mentioned a, a triad of soda, fast food, and pizza uh, that we were seeing real changes in, having identified them as contributors to the problem. Um, but you co-authored a article in the journal Pediatrics talking about the link between one commonly consumed food item and the growing growth of America's children. And I assume that that was pizza. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about this study and what it showed about the correlation between some of America's most popular food choices and the epidemic.
2: Right. Well, I'm not sure that that article was the most popular article that I've ever read uh, or been part of, because pizza is widely consumed. One of the characteristics of fast food, sodas, and pizza is that when children and adolescents uh, consume those foods, and that's where the work has been done, they don't compensate for the consumption of those foods by reducing the intake of other foods. On any given day, one in five children or teenagers in the United States has pizza. On those days, an adolescent consumes about 600 calories worth of pizza. But in the adolescent, they consume 250 extra calories Hmm. um, that are not compensated. And we think that's a significant contributor. And interestingly enough, the healthiest pizza that kids consume is the pizza that they have at schools. And that's a consequence, I think, of the of the very nice work that the administration has done in setting standards for school meals.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. William Dietz, a director of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention at George Washington University. So during your time at CDC, we we're just starting to see the talk about prevention as an important directive for national health policy. I'm wondering, what's your thought about how this can be shaped, uh, I think, uh, Frieden and Bloomberg had a great run on smoking where they, you know, use New York City as the springboard. Where do you see the role of an elected official and uh, any examples that you have of people who you're excited about the work they're doing?
2: Well, six states and 16 municipalities have reported decreases in the prevalence of childhood obesity, and and in many places those seem real. Although New York City has gotten the most attention, and and certainly Mayor Bloomberg and, and Tom Frieden deserve credit, Even though the the limits on soda size failed, if you look over time, the media's coverage of soda was substantial and and grew with time, and I think accounts in part for the declines in soda consumption, Mm -hmm. but not only in New York City, but more nationally. There's now studies going on to try to understand what contributed to the declines in childhood obesity. Mm -hmm. New York was one of those um, examples Um, But other examples that are being investigated include Anchorage, Alaska, and like New York City, there was a champion, and that champion was the superintendent of schools. Philadelphia um, is another place which has reported declines, and uh, Mayor Nutter was Mm -hmm. certainly a leader in this. But over time, uh, Philadelphia has introduced a, a number of very significant changes in schools What was interesting about Philadelphia was that those decreases occurred in all ethnic groups. There have been greater declines among the white population than among the Mm African-American or Hispanic population, which means that the disparities in obesity become greater Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of those interventions.
1: Well, Dr. Dietz, there's a myriad of new technologies that make it easier for folks to quantify their fitness behavior, uh, particularly we're seeing this explosion, maybe 50 million Americans that use some kind of wearable or digital device. What role do you see for technology and health data and these uh, personal devices in the quest to uh, improve health, particularly from a healthy weight perspective?
2: I I think it's a, a very interesting development, but I haven't seen any data yet that shows that people who wear those devices are... Um, any more likely to be, for example, physically active or consume a better diet because of the devices. My impression is that people who use those devices and wear them are people who are already interested and concerned and actively engaged in positive health practices. The other challenge, I think, with the devices is um, who's using them? Are they being used equally across the population, or is this, are we going to see another digital divide Mm -hmm. that is ethnic-specific? But the other application, which I think there are some good studies on, is the role of technology and internet um, interventions related to obesity that there are um, th- there are clearly some successes with the use of internet um, reinforcement for weight loss practices that uh, are not yet in wide use but are are quite promising.
0: Hmm. You know, uh, Dr. Dietz, another area uh, where the population can be motivated uh, towards better fitness and nutrition is certainly in the workplace. So this area of corporations being engaged not dissimilar to municipalities or state governments uh, where there are leaders there. Can you share with our listeners some success stories where uh, the business community has has incentivized employees to take a more active role in their health and well-being? And is there a cost-benefit analysis that you can share that supports the data from these programs?
2: Um, Well, off the top of my head, I don't have – specific corporations that I can point to. Um, but the National Business Group on Health um, has been in ga- actively engaged in promoting worksite wellness among its members for um, at least a decade, maybe longer by now. Um, and they have given a series of awards for corporations which have successfully introduced um, those measures. But it's important to remember that the National Business Group on Health represents the, the biggest companies uh, in the country, um, and yet, the, the biggest companies in the country employ a minority of, mm-hmm. uh, of adults. The, the real ch- and, and but in those companies, um, which have the capacity to build fitness centers, to uh, to have reinforcements uh, for um, health risk assessments that um, and, and changes in health risk assessments uh, by lowering um, insurance rates and so forth. Um, and those companies have reported a good return on that investment. That's been well documented. But the bigger challenge is about the medium and small work sites, which are um, employ the majority of American adults. And in those companies, I think the um, the strategies are a little more challenging. And I, I've always felt that um, that we're going to have the greatest success in those companies if we're able to link those companies or get them to – invest mm-hmm. uh, and support community-based interventions mm-hmm. um, that would benefit not just the community, but would benefit their employees. Um, and to me, the, the, the promise of, of um, worksite wellness is that worksites are to adults what schools are to mm-hmm. children and, uh, and teenagers, that people spend a lot of time there. And um, very modest changes can make a big difference. Um, so, that, for example, we were talking earlier about the um, the important role of elected officials. <clears throat> mayor Menino, when he was mayor in Boston, oh, yeah. um, eliminated um, sugar sugar drinks and um, and and I, I can't remember whether he eliminated vending machines or just mandated that vending machines mm-hmm. had to provide more healthful options. But uh, but in Boston, um, that the the um, setting policy for the municipal um, agencies Mm -hmm. around healthful foods um, was a significant step forward. Another good example of how a um, worksite can change um, the availability of of less healthful products comes from the Boston Hospital Commission, which convinced uh, or engaged, I should say, the um, major teaching hospitals in Boston to to change the labels on sodas in their cafeterias. Um, to and so they did a red light, yellow light, green light type label for uh, the less healthful to, to more healthful sodas. And Mass General Hospital not only did that, but they uh, also engaged choice architecture by moving the the um, sodas labeled red around the corner where they weren't the first things that huh. that people that use their cafeterias saw. And as a consequence of that, they saw a decline in the consumption of. Uh, of the less healthful sodas and an increase in the consumption of more healthful products, including water, and made a profit to boot. Um, So structuring work sites uh, in that way, as as has been done quite successfully in Boston, is uh, a very easy way to um, make healthful choices easier choices.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. William Dietz, director of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. You can learn more about his work by going to GW Public Health, or you can follow on Twitter at GW Public Health. Dr. Dietz, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare Today.
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: At Conversations on Healthcare, we
0: want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Several lawmakers have made the claim that scientific studies show a 20-week-old fetus can feel pain. We looked into the research on this issue, and it's a complicated and controversial topic, but the ability to feel pain at that specific point in gestation is unproven. The lawmakers' remarks were made during House debate on a bill that would ban abortions beyond 20 weeks, with some exceptions for victims of rape or incest or in cases of the mother's life being in danger. Research on this topic has focused on brain and nervous system development and what scientists know about the processing of pain. The issue is complicated primarily because pain is a subjective experience and a fetus cannot indicate if something hurts. Published research generally supports pain being experienced later in gestation than 20 weeks. In 2005, a summary of the available evidence published in the Journal of the American Medical Association concluded that the limited evidence on the issue indicated that the perception of pain is unlikely before the third trimester which begins at 27 to 28 weeks from conception. One reason for that conclusion is that the connections between the thalamus and the cortex have not yet formed. That happens between 23 and 30 weeks gestation, and the JAMA authors argue those connections are a precursor for the perception of pain. Some experts say that pain in a fetus is not the same as it is in an adult and could occur earlier than 20 weeks but scientific study has not pinpointed a firm starting point for pain in a developing fetus. One expert we interviewed has stressed the need for more research on this complicated issue.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Healthcare providers are forever on the lookout for that magic elixir that can cure a host of chronic ills in one step. And in the case of obesity, depression, anxiety, and stress, that elixir could be, turns out, a number of steps, as in taking a hike. A large study conducted by several institutions, including the University of Michigan and Edge Hill University in the U.K., looked at the medicinal benefits derived from regular group hikes conducted in nature. We could see that these two different
5: types of help for our mental well-being, they're operating independently. That means that if we go out in nature for a walk, we're getting an additional boost to our mental well-being.
1: Researchers evaluated some 2,000 participants in a program called Walking for Health in England, which sponsors some 3,000 walks per week across the country.
5: There was investment in these walking groups, in training leaders to take people on walks, finding trails that were good for people to do, even if they had health problems.
1: Dr. Sarah Warber, professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, said this study showed a dramatic improvement in the mental well-being of participants, especially those who had recently experienced something stressful. Depression was reduced. Perceived stress was reduced. And
5: um, that people had, they experienced more positive feelings or positive emotions. And there's been really lovely research that's shown that when we have positive emotions, we actually have better health in the long run. Our control group were people who at one time intended to be part of walking groups, agreed to be followed, but they never took up the practice.
1: Dr. Warber says it seems to be the combination of breathing in fresh air surrounded by nature during moderate exercise and the group dynamic adds a social benefit. Other studies have shown a link between mood and exercise, but Dr. Warber says this is the first study that revealed the added benefits of group hikes in nature and significant mitigation of depression.
5: Because we were really interested in whether if you are more stressed, would you get some better benefit? And in fact, that did pan out. Getting out in nature, getting out in nature with a group or with others has real benefit in reducing your stress.
1: Walk for Health, a simple guided group nature hike program which incentivizes folks suffering from depression and anxiety to step into the fresh air with others, to talk out their thoughts while taking a hike, improving their mood, reducing their depression, increasing their overall health at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
3: And I'm Mark Maselli.